Hi, Vanessa. How's it going? I'm good. I, I need to sleep more. You never ask me how I'm doing. I don't know, because you're the polite one. I, I, don't, I, do, I don't do... Um, what's the word for generic questions that, that there, there isn't a real answer for? Small talk. Chit-chat. Small talk. Yeah, I don't do that. But I do have a literary question for you for later. But for starters, today we have Shoshana Weissman. We've been on something of an economic streak in our topics. I don't know if it's something yeah. I should apologize for. It is weird, isn't it? We had Rebecca Henderson defending capitalism against capitalism. And then we had Neil Ferguson, who's, who's obviously an, an economics powerhouse. Well, to be fair, this is partly why I wanted to have this conversation with Shoshana. So Shoshana is a research fellow and head of digital media at R Street Institute, mm -hmm. which is a... a libertarian Washington think tank, a free markets think tank, whatever the, the euphemism for, for libertarian hyper-individualists. If you don't know her, she's also a Twitter terrorist. Is that how she self-describes? No, that's how I describe okay, her. I was going to say, it, sounded, it sounds a lot more violent than the way she would describe herself. She'd probably say like a ninja or something. Ninjas can be quite violent, Vanessa. So we talked about the regulatory state. We talked about regulating big tech. That was really the heart of the conversation. And we also generally got to talk about law from constitutional to Talmudic. And she was very happy to join me in geeking out about these topics. She's also just delightfully random. Especially it, on her Twitter feed. It goes from incredibly serious and like policy oriented to, you know, something about sloths. It's delightful. It's delightful. Yeah. But, but so I've, I've been looking for an excuse to talk to her for a while. But what really prompted me to, on a whim, just ask her to come here and, and do the next episode was that Mr... Professor, sir, <laughs> it's not a sir yet. Ferguson and I Neil got into. Neil isn't a sir yet. You, I think he would be. I don't believe he's been knighted quite yet. I don't know if there are rules against expats. But oh, he, I don't. I don't think so. I think Sir Paul McCartney, and I don't think he's lived in the UK for a while. Yeah, but they couldn't not give the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, he's also not Scottish, so I don't know if there's like a weird tension there. I don't know. Yeah, no, and I also feel like giving them the the title was. A, an act of reclamation, sort of. <laughs> These are ours. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, Monsieur Ferguson and I got into a bit of a, a spat in, in the last episode. He, I, as as our friend Ken said, his, his British conservatism was showing in, in that he believed that Facebook needed to be regulated or at the very least... Section 230 should be amended to create more possibilities to sue big tech and chip away at their immense power. It's been kind of a recurring theme for me to vent on this issue because mm. I really, I don't know why I care so much about this. It's like I have no, I have no love for big tech personally. I just think that I, I, a lot of those solutions that are being floated are not going to lead to the results that right. people want. right. So I just wanted somebody who is vastly more knowledgeable than me on the topic to talk about it. And Section 230 is one of Shoshana's pet issues at the moment. So this is, she's, I think, what, she's our third libertarian. We, we, <laughs> I get the just, soft spot in our heart, in this podcast heart. And I, I must have said it in our first libertarian interview with Reason Magazine senior reporter Robbie Suave that I love, despite not being a libertarian myself at all, uh, I have some I have some issues of which I might be considered libertarianesque, but I am not. But I do love that the, the place that they hold right now, at least in American politics, they're just so well positioned to call out crap 
on on both sides. And at this moment, it's so useful. I think it, it's interesting, though, because e- even though we're not libertarians, I think we're very much attracted to the culture <laughs> of the libertarians <laughs> and have it. You know what I mean? Like they're almost like a personality type that we're kind of like drawn to. I almost can think of it a little bit of like, you know how we, you say like that Jew, being Jewish isn't really a religion necessarily. It's like a whole like cultural identity and i feel like it's kind of like that it's kind of we're just kind of like in similar orbits for some reason we are libertarian tourists yeah li- exactly li- libero curious libero curious i yes, feel like, I like that. this is going off the rails <laughs> it's going it's really too late for, for both it's of really us to too be late doing this intro to one of the reasons we had to wait is because there was a street party outside our like a block party outside our window which I've, i'm actually really sad i didn't get to go have fun in the block party i was working but did you at least get to stroll through it and oh uh, yes it was it was wonderful people were people were dancing and being silly that's it was cool it was on your book but okay one last question the 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 generic question for today is i brought it up to you yesterday you know you studied literature this is where you come from you come from the world of literature what what is your position on richard dawkins's (laughs) wild literary criticism and i'm going to read it to you as uh as a reminder yesterday or what uh, what's yesterday? Saturday. On Saturday, he now infamously tweeted, and I'm and I'm quoting: Kafka's Metamorphosis is called a major work of literature. Why? If it's sci-fi, it's bad sci-fi. If, like Animal Farm, it's an allegory, an allegory of what? Scholarly answers range from pretentious Freudian to far-fetched feminist. I don't get it. Where are the <laughs> emperor's clothes? Hmm. Your thoughts. Well, unsurprisingly, Adam, because I, I am an English major who's read, like, three books. I have not read <laughs> Metamorphoses. <laughs> I don't know, think I've ever read any Kafka. Have I read Kafka? Question mark. Uh, but in terms of, I mean, I mean, I could just say what I said to you on the street yesterday, which is it's just very interesting that he's using genre as his parameters by which to judge this work of literature. Like, why, why, why is, would, would, would this work only be valuable if it were to fit neatly into some sort of genre package and if it's not doing that to the best of its ability like why bother what what what's what's the point of a work if it's not you know i don't know i don't really understand the premise of this of this line of criticism i i i love it because <laughs> obviously obviously it makes it makes no sense as criticism <laughs> but i it was bothering him I mean, the <laughs> how long has he held this inside him? Ex- yeah, I mean, he was turning over in his bed, thinking, "Why?" And I know those feelings. <laughs> I relate. There are so many things that keep me up. But why do people like this? They don't really. They're lying. They, can, they can't. There are so many things I feel that way about. Like mm. I remember feeling it very strongly about Inception. But to feel that about Kafka, I feel is much, much more of a burden to carry because. To deep down feel that Kafka is a fraud, to believe that you're the only person <laughs> who knows it or at least admits it to themselves, that's 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 difficult. That's, this, that's a burden. This reminds me of the uh, deep cut in our Batya Ungar Sargon conversation where she at the very, very end says like, well, Shakespeare's not really any good. And we like, did not have any time to actually discuss that. So we, should, yeah, I, we should definitely have a more literature oriented episode to hash these things out. Oh my God, we should do a uh, uh, literature roundtable just about the, the Kafka, by, by which time hopefully you'll have read it. 
<laughs> and with that. This is Uncertain Things. Did we say that? <laughs> this is Uncertain Things, the podcast. Welcome to Uncertain Things. This is Uncertain Things, the podcast. We are uncertain.substack.com. We are underslept co-hosts of, of Uncertain Things. If you want to yes. be nice, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That really super helps. And hopefully next time we'll be we'll be back to our <laughs> to our wheelhouse of the humanities and get some mm. more I, either angry angry politics or angry angry literary criticism. Mm. Yeah. With that, Shoshana. sorry about this, Shana. I was just busy fixing my gin. <laughs> it's already four, so I'm behind <laughs> schedule. Senator Shoshana, thank you for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate there, it. There are several reasons, um, some of which will become clear a little later why we, we wanted to talk to you. But to get started, we are talking to a person who's coming from the intersection, we'll call it, between media and, and politics. How would, you, how would you define yourself? Yeah, so I do what I want when I want. I mean, I do a lot of work and I don't always have to choose my schedule. But, um, but basically, I handle... Um, all of my all of the digital media for the R Street Institute. I have employees under me. I work with my colleagues in some of it too, and I'm also a policy fellow. And it's funny because I didn't I didn't realize starting to work on the policy side more how much digital media would inform my work. I always knew that policy informed my digital media, but it's so much fun to have my hands in so many things because everything I do informs everything else I do, and it's just such a fun learning and growing process and. I'm very quickly bored, but never bored at my job, which is a blessing because if I'm bored, I just leave. <laughs> yeah. Which is good for your employers to know. So they just keep, keep yeah, throwing they stuff know. your way. <laughs> so for our listeners who in their disgrace don't know who you are, uh, t- tell us what are your politics? Where do you come from intellectually? And how does that interplay with what you what you actually do? Sure. So I'm pretty libertarian. I'm not like, I mean, very few libertarians are like, let's burn it all down. No roads or bridges or anything like that. But uh, for me, I just kind of err on the side. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, um, but not, not as many as people think a lot of us are like actually pretty interventionalist in national security, or we have our quirks depending on the policy area. Mm. Um, But for me in particular, it's just erring on the side of liberty that if when when you're on the line, like which way to go, usually I go liberty over government intrusion. And it's just because I've seen regulations harm so many things um, over the years and, and all different kinds of stuff. Like regulations are why we don't have carbon capture technology. And I'm like, for, you know, I believe in climate change. And for anyone who believes that climate change is a real threat, we should be wanting to do everything we can in the meantime um, to try to reduce and also just pull carbon out of the air. Like, that's so cool to me. It's crazy that regulations stop that. Um, everything from that to... Um, Can you explain how, how they stop it? Like, if we're already giving this example and, and actually and take it as a, as a teaching yeah. example, somebody skeptical of the libertarian perspective. There's an easy go-to when blaming regulations, like, oh, look, there's been a pile of laws that have developed over the years, and now they're slowing down our ability to innovate in this sector that we didn't think will be that important 10 years ago, and now we're stuck because of regulation. Right. But you can still understand the initial purpose of the regulation, and maybe at the time of its writing, those, those, those uh, rules were important or necessary. So what's your response to that, and how, 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 how are we wrong? Sure. So it depends on the regulations. Sometimes, it, I mean, a lot of regulations come from genuinely good intentions. A lot of them don't, though. But in the car, in the case of carbon capture, it's more that we don't have a regulatory framework for approval of something like that, which is sad because, like, I don't mind creating more regulations if it allows something to happen. For example, 
on the state level, like uh, most people who are licensed professionals can't move to one state and just get to work. Like their license doesn't transfer. So we need a regulatory framework that allows that. So I'm totally cool when it like, you know, permission, like it's like, hey, you can go do this. Everything here is pretty much the same. You can go do this. That's all good. But it bothers me with like, um, you know, in Louisiana, it's the only state that licensed florists. There's no epidemic of harm of unlicensed floristry <laughs> in any other state but um, they decided they needed to license florists. And this is a good example of a regulation that wasn't well-intended. It, it's the only goal is to protect licensed florists. So um, this is actually what got me into regulatory reform to begin with, because before I was, I guess, more into social issues and other stuff. But um, when I was in college, I heard the story of Sandy Meadows. Um, she was an elderly widow who had never had to provide for herself before. Um, she lived in Louisiana and she knew how to arrange flowers. So she took the floristry exam, which at the time was both a written and an arrangement exam. She failed multiple times um, and it wasn't her fault. The pass rate for the florist exam was lower than it was for the bar exam. So it was easier to become a lawyer than a florist in Louisiana. And that tells you everything about like the real intentions there. It wasn't health or safety. It was uh, licensed florists didn't want other people to work. Um, so she ended up working for a grocery and they loved her. Like her clients loved her. She was safe. There were no issues. But the government found out that she was an unlicensed florist and they told the grocery, hey, um, if she keeps working here, we're going to have to shut you down. So they had to let her go. And when she died from natural causes, she was in poverty. And it killed me to know that like government took away this woman's life, what she was making of her life, her potential and opportunity, um, just because she didn't have a license to do something that in no other state you need a license for. And even when this went through the courts, um, the government was asked to justify this license. And they said, well, what if there's infected dirt? They never said what it would be infected with or what if, I think one of the ones was, what if a bride is walking down the aisle and she falls and the stem is too sharp and it hurts her? But this, these were never things that had happened. They're not things that happen in other states. And the judge accepted it because unfortunately, um, even though um, under the constitution are unenumerated rights, rights that aren't written down, but we still have because they're, it's like, hey, we have all the rights we don't have just the few rights written down. Like that's what the Ninth Amendment says. And there's a, um, a provision in the 14th Amendment that says, hey, yes, this, but also for the states. Um, but courts often ignore that and they just apply the rational basis test, which is literally just if if government can think of a reason that this might exist, like then it's upheld. And that's something that just really got to me. And over the years, I've seen so many examples of that. Um, in all different areas. And, and I'm not for, I'm not against stuff that's actually protecting people and helping people. And there's evidence, hey, when you have this, the outcomes are so much better. People are safer. Fewer people die or get sick. I'm always open there. I just want to make sure that it's the lowest reasonable barrier um, that protects the same thing. Um, there's so many examples of this. And some of it's just straight up racist. Like in a bunch of states, um, boards decided that they were going to license uh, hair braiders. Um, in some cases, that wasn't even written in the statute. And they're like, hey, we're just going to regulate this now. Hmm. Um, and it was to stop African hair braiders who immigrants who came here knew very well how to do like intricate braiding that like I would have no idea how to do. Um, and they would have to go to a cosmetology school, never learn how to braid hair in the school in order to be allowed to braid hair. There's so much stuff like that. And it's just I hate seeing us hurt people instead of help people. Because for me, if, if government's going to get involved, it has to do something good, not stop liberty. So your intuition is that a lot of the requirements for licensing comes from legislators being captured by parochial or guild interests, right? 
Exactly. So how do you draw the line? Obviously, certain occupations need licensing. We need we need sure. a bar exam. We need. We, I, I assume maybe you disagree, but you know, let's take the the lower hanging fruit, which is obviously doctors. Okay, so I would love, as a ignorant member of the public, to be able to trust a certain certificate telling me which doctors are frauds and which aren't. Sure. But there are still problems with the barriers. And this is something that I wrote about recently. Um, the, I'm sure that you guys have heard stories about immigrant doctors who yeah. are here and they can't work. They can't, you know, their their qualifications are greater. Even maybe they're a little bit below what our doctors are, but they can't do anything in the medical profession. Um, it's crazy. You need to go through often 10 years of relicensing and maybe some luck because in order to get the um, residencies, the programs favor Americans. So if you're an immigrant, um, even if you're a legal resident, whatever it is, if you weren't born here, for whatever reason, we just don't favor you. So someone could have had lots and lots of experience in another country and an opportunity to further stuff here, but we stop them from being able to do that. So even in the higher skilled professions where I'm like, hey, I'm okay with this license, there's still room for reform just to make sure that the barriers make sense, are protecting people and aren't like hurting um, the ability of people to become doctors, especially um it's some crazy percentage. I want to say it's like 25% of our um, of medical professionals across different levels in the U.S. are immigrants. So we should be creating good pathways for that to happen if that's already happening. Instead of saying, hey, you can, you can live here, but you can never help people um, in a medical situation, even though we have a crazy doctor shortage. But when we have a reality where every state gets to set up their own certificate standard, doesn't that mean that you're going to have more chaos and... The, the barriers for entry are going to be all in total disarray and incongruity. It wouldn't it be better to have a federal licensing for, for the healthcare profession that just sets better standards. Aside from federalism concerns, just the government's lack of power in my view to be able to do some of it. Part, part of the, the bigger problem for me is that um, it's really hard to knock out bad licenses or even reduce barriers in sensible ways on the state level. And if we bring it on the national level, the more the most likely outcome is that we have the highest, um, least sensible barriers at the federal level because the American Medical Association will keep lobbying it for, for it to be as high as humanly possible. Um, so rather than that, I'm big on states say, um, doing what Governor Ducey in Arizona does, which um, he was the first, uh, he made Arizona the first state to say, look, if you come here, you have a reasonably similar license, you can get straight to work. And it's been working. And I love that. I love that mobility. And it's really important. So as much as I wish it could kind of be easier, I think that there's a lot of real dangers in making it happen on the federal level. I mean, like, for example, knocking out the Louisiana florist license. I, I've been trying for years. There's people before me who have been trying for even more years. And like, it's still there. It's still the only state to do it. They still make up nonsense excuses. And if that's going on, like, I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up with a national florist license because the florist lobby there is so intense. And if they have congressmen, they could lobby, then we get a national florist license. And it, it's sad to say, but it's, it's something that I really worry about. And when we have data from different states, we can make the argument like, look, the, the barriers are lower here but the outcomes are the same or they're worse or they're better. We, we can have that data to compare. It really is that laboratory where we can see, hey, this is licensed here and nowhere else and everything's fine everywhere else. And having that data is really valuable um, because when people are open to reform, that's how you get it. To what extent are you actually able to use data to change minds, whether in Washington or in local legislatures? A lot. It's been really, it's really encouraging. A lot of times they, they're like, oh, you know, this must be here for a good reason. And I'm like, I'm sorry, it's not. Here's some data. And they're like, oh, okay. 
the the big issue is when they're captured by the interest because there's people there's Republicans in, in Louisiana who will not touch the license because the florists have them. Um, cosmetologists also have that kind of lobby in a lot of different states where um, no one will touch them because um, they have the certain politicians captured. But as far as people who are like genuinely good people and open minded, a lot of times you can talk to them and be like, look, I, I know you're concerned about this, but here's data and here's, um, you know, here's other logic. Here's more stuff you can look at that shows um, and they'll be totally open to it. Um, and those are my favorite kind of legislators, the ones who are like, show me some nerd stuff and make let me make sure that this wouldn't hurt anyone or that maybe even a lower barrier would actually be better in certain cases. Um, I love those kind of legislators and they're all over. It's just, it, it's good to get to them before some of the lobbies do. <laughs> you'd, think that, um, you, you'd think that these different states would be looking at this as like a competitive advantage to attract more people. I mean, I've been, obviously I've been thinking a lot about this with the pandemic because people, at least on the quote unquote creative class are moving a lot at this moment. And so cities and states are kind of having to compete with each other. Maybe this is slightly different because I don't know, maybe you, you're more focused on like, uh, different types of jobs that are maybe less about like remote work and more like you actually have to be embedded in the community. But either way, you'd think that states would be putting on their hats of like, how do I attract uh, like capable, competent workers to to drive industry in my state, right? So that's Governor Ducey's perspective. And it's why I'm such a big fan of him because he's very data-driven. You know, we'll disagree here and there, but um, but he's, he thinks about it that way. But not every politician does. In certain cases, they're just, it, they're better off, uh, you know, caving to lobbies and it's the path of least resistance. Um, they can get campaign donations or other things out of it. Or um, they can do a phony, um, oh, look, I'm making people safe, like by harming lots of other people. And it's not even making people safe stuff. So it just depends on the politician and their incentives. But um, that is definitely a growing force. And it's been really cool to see because the first two states that have models like this, Arizona's was better, but now there's actually better models out there, which is great. But then the second was Pennsylvania, which is a bluer state. And the governor's a, a blue guy, uh, Governor Tom Wolf. And I'm like, yay, this is great. Like, I don't want this to be partisan. I want everyone to look at this and say, how can we attract people, make life easier for people? Um, so there's definitely a lot of politicians looking at it that way. But there's other politicians who are like, well, my friends at whatever lobby. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, leave me alone. <laughs> so to sum it up in big picture, that's because it's a point that we come back to often on this pod, especially when we bring the, the libertarian crowd one of the criticisms against libertarianism is that you're going to foster social Darwinism, right. which will result in corporate dystopia and robber barons ruling our lives. But what you're pointing out is that there's a more immediate danger of corporate cronyism when corporations can capture government regulators. Yeah. And actually, I have a really great example just up that alley. Um, so one of them is uh, years ago, I, and I just saw an update about it, which is why I have this in mind. Um, in, in New Jersey, there were various pet smarts where um, they were killing dogs. Like no one could figure out why, but like dogs would go in for a grooming and they would come out super sick or dead sometimes. And, and the consumers were like, what the heck? So um, the legislature was like, oh, well, we're going to create a dog grooming license. And PetSmart was like, yes, create a dog grooming license. Of course, they can afford it. Uh, the age limit was going to be 18. So your neighbor kid who sometimes watches your dog, that would be illegal. But PetSmart, who had been murdering dogs, could easily get licenses for all their people. Like, that wouldn't be an issue for them. Um, 
Thankfully, it didn't go through, but I was just horrified by that. And recently, um, I, I saw that some prosecutions went through, like the courts actually working it out. I think they found the people doing it. But um, PetSmart took no accountability. It had been going on for years. After I wrote a piece about it back in 2018, um, after that were the incidents that were like going through the court system. And I'm just horrified that they would do something like that. And if those are the people controlling the regulations and saying, oh, no, regulate us, like that tells you everything you need to know. Um, and that same kind of dynamic happens across industry and across regulatory type. And it's not to say it's always the case. Sometimes like they are worried about things and, and there's earnest intentions and maybe even they are lobbying for good regulations, but it's always important to be a skeptical and try to figure out, is there a, a bigger reason? How would these regulations work? Who would they keep out? Because regulations are always going to keep out people. And sometimes that's okay. We just want to make sure like, wait, who are they keeping out? Would this, have, would this uh, regulation have stopped this issue? And having a license to groom dogs wouldn't stop. Like lots of normal people groom dogs and go, don't kill them. It was just some sadistic people, of course. Some people groom dogs and don't kill them. Right. Like <laughs> it drives me up a wall to see people say, oh, but health and safety. I'm like, no, this is pet smart being the worst. <laughs> You're already alluding to the main topic of conversation that I want to get to. But yeah. before before that getting into conversations with people who are a little more to the left of me, some of them on the podcast, actually with also with people to the right of me, uh, about this idea of regulating big tech. When you see Mark Zuckerberg prostrating himself before Congress saying, please regulate me. And in fact, if you're spending time on Twitter or Instagram, you'll see ads from Facebook, again, begging for government regulations. And somewhat similarly, there's this headline that I keep coming back to that blew my mind. I think it was either New York Magazine or something like that from a, a very liberal pro-antitrust perspective. Pro-antitrust. Um, pro-antitrust, <laughs> yeah. And it was something like, even Jeff Bezos is saying that it's time to raise uh, corporate taxes. And the article was obviously claiming to come from a, a pro-worker, lefty perspective. But with all of those cases... When the heads of the corporations are begging for this type of policy, maybe it should give you pause that perhaps, just perhaps, those regulations won't lead to the results that you're hoping for. So this keeps blowing my mind, but we're, we're going to come back to this. So this was just a, a little Garcia Marquezian uh, journeying time into future conversations. But, but I want to roll back a little bit about you and um, ask... Uh, I'm glad that we got to talk a little bit about licensing reform because I know it's your pet issue and it's interestingly one of the areas where you can actually offer us some like practical ways of making the world a little bit better. And often we forget, even though our podcast is called uh, Everything is Broken, Now What? We forget to get to the Now What part of it. So I'm glad we got that out of the way. But now to the to the dark stuff. So first of all, the darkest question of all, how did you become a libertarian? <laughs> Too much high and rand in college? So I, I know this is going to sound really peak and really dorky, but I've just personal responsibility has always been a really big thing for me. I kind of had to grow up fast for a lot of reasons between medical issues and like home life issues. I just always had to be an adult. So I was kind of always more responsible than people. And I hated in school being punished for stuff when um, when I was the only one who did the right thing. And I'm like, well, that's not fair. So little things <laughs> like that. And also just... Um, Wait, like, like I, what? what would you, why would you be punished for doing the right thing? Like, what is... <laughs> oh, um, just because they would punish the class. Oh, and like, I see. 
Yeah. And even though I was only, uh, there was one time I always remember, and it's so dorky, but in kindergarten, they're like, okay, you all sit down for the movie and you all get popcorn and like applesauce or something. And I remember everyone stood up and I was really upset. I'm like, I can't see the movie. I'm the only one sitting down. And also I'm really short. And then like they rewarded me for it. And like, that felt nice because like a lot of times I do the right thing and people don't notice. Like that's nice. Um, so personal responsibility has always been just like a, a dorky thing I've been into. Wait, 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 but that, that was then, not a problem of personal responsibility. That was insufficient enforcement. Bad regulatory framework. Like the, regu- the regulation was good. Everybody needs to sit down, <laughs> but they needed to, to enforce it. Oh yeah, but like they did. They they ended up enforcing it, and then um and then the other kids learned like okay we have to listen to the teacher and I'm like I was already listening and I'm rewarded uh, for listening oh, to I the see, teacher. I see. Yeah, yeah. So stuff like that. Also, this is really dorky, but I've always been really interested in Torah law, like more so than any part of Judaism. I just love learning about law and like why it works as it does. Um, so I would always be kind of bored like by the. Um, yeah, I know this is really dorky by the community aspects of Judaism, but really into like, oh, me too. why did God say this? Like, I love learning like why God says stuff and like all that. Like I got really into it. So I love law and I love like due process in law. I once found a substantive due process in Torah via a Rabbi Sachs op-ed. And my friend was like, Shani, you need to log off. Like <laughs> you're getting too dorky. But I've always been into just like figuring out why things work as they do. And when I got really sick when I was 13, I would watch the news all day. Um, and I just fell in love. I'm like, I want to do this. And I lean right. And like, I like John Stossel. And like, there were certain other figures who I just seemed to like. But um, it, it was after that, getting into licensing reform, really, like my passion of, of more libertarian regulatory reform came because I realized like, wow, regulations can really hurt people in extremely specific and foreseeable ways. And like, this is something I really care about. And over the years, like, I just got more and more into it. I used to write about it for different publications. And when I joined R Street, I'm like, can I still do my regulatory reform? They're like, yeah, do what you want. And um, then they just like let me and now I'm a fellow. So <laughs> it's a fun path. So you weren't recruited at the dead of night by the clandestine agents of the Federalist Society, were you? No, but I have been a member since I was 16 by choice because I'm like, oh, wow, there's people debating law. Like, this is fun. So I've, I'm legit of the, probably the person to join at the youngest age. <laughs> but just for the record, like tell us a little bit about how it is to be a member of the Federalist Society. Because all I know about you is that you meet every full moon in a beer cellar to pray and bring tribute to the effigy of Antonin Scalia. But besides <laughs> that, what do you do? That's really funny. No, so we don't do it on the full moon. We actually do it during the day because we're, uh, people suspect less. Uh-huh. No, um, so there's a, there's a bunch of branches of it. And basically how it works is there's a lot of chapter heads, whether it's law schools or like local areas, and they meet and they have debates. And they're actually really strict about this, um, in, uh, except in very rare cases, you have to have someone who opposes the view of the speaker. Like it has to be a debate. It can't be like, we all agree and love this thing. Like every now and then you'll have it, but they really don't like to do it. Um, and they've turned down um, talks like proposed by people because they're like, no, this is a talk. This isn't a debate. Mm. Um, and they often try to bring in liberals in, intentionally or even conservatives with totally different views. Um, and I love that. I love the debating. 
Um, and then they have the DC chapter and like the national conference where there's just tons of it all day. And there's judges making judge jokes at each other. And it's so much fun. Um, and you get to ask questions and some people drone on in questions, but other people like ask really great questions and you learn a ton. So I just love going there to learn. Um, a lot of times if I'm like, okay, I want to get into this new area of law and understand it better. I'll just like listen to a debate or like read a couple of papers that they've published from different points of view and like come up with my own views. But like, because of them, I know all these different scholars, many of whom disagree with one another, but it's so much fun. Um, and also there's just, it's good for networking. I mean, like, you know, in the halls, people have met Gorsuch before he was a justice or Kavanaugh or, um, even I think Kagan has spoken there. I forget exactly who, but like, they're just, it, it's so much fun to me. And they have like lectures and, you know, what, whatever way the legal movement is developing. And I mean, legal movement, like super broadly, like they want to have debates on it and talk about it. Um, and they've always been really kind to me ever since I was a teenage nerd. They were like, yeah, no, you're not a lawyer and you might not ever want to be, but like, come hang out with us and like, come nerd with us. And they're super welcoming to everyone. Um, and that's one thing that always bothers me when like people are like, oh, you wouldn't ever have us there. They're like, you can literally register online. We were not going to be like, oh, you can't come because you work here. It's like, no, come like debate and talk with us and bring up points that like our speakers haven't discussed. Like, I, I just honestly love it. And it's so much fun. And even though the members lean um, libertarian and conservative for the most part, there's definitely people who don't. Um, whether in theory or in politics, but it's, it's honestly really fun. And I wish more people would join because it makes it more fun <laughs> to have people like nerding at each other and like sniping, but like in a gentle way, like intellectual sniping at each other and poking at each other and stuff. So I, it's always been a blast. And um, especially when I want to learn, like, which view uh, do I, you know, which view appeals to me more watching a FedSoc panel of like six people is the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, that's how I got into my, like that my, my love of unenumerated rights came from the Federalist Society. That's how I discovered Randy Barnett. And I'm like, oh yeah, why do we treat unenumerated rights differently? That's crap. And like, you know, people think of it as a liberal thing, but I think of it as like a right-leaning thing in, in the theory uh, of rights. And ex like, explain know. that for a second. I'm, I'm just, sure, you, so. you pick my, and I should say just as an aside <laughs> that, that um, I, I was being facetious, but I actually want to point out that FedSoc did leave a, a, a deep impression on me, not necessarily in convincing me, but because when I moved here, like you, I think the thing that I loved both about Judaism and I think generally in life has always been litigiousness. Yeah. I'm a hardcore legophile. And one of the aspects that I appreciate the most about Jewish tradition is that cold, analytical, legalistic framework the spiritual side bored the crap out of me <laughs> when i studied history i framed all my all my research and work around legal history to my surprise when i moved here the federalist society was one of the only institutions that offered that kind of dialectical argumentative mindset in an academic setting and i got there through philip hamburger if you know him from columbia university oh yeah brilliant guy right about the administrative state but yeah, that, that environment is great to even allow you to have a better sense of what it is that you disagree with and, and give you a more cogent understanding of what your beliefs are. So my little soliloquy for FedSoc, over back to you. Tell us about unenumerated rights. 
what the hell? Oh yeah, no, but I feel the same way about it. Like, I mean, I would love to have more organizations that do it. And there's definitely some others that do it, especially at a lot of think tanks, but Bedsock is like the mecca for it. And it's so much fun for it. And I love that. But yeah, so for unenumerated rights, basically the ninth amendment says, and, and I used to have it memorized, but it basically says, hey, just because we didn't write some other rights down doesn't mean they don't exist and that they're not protected. Um, but for some reason over the years, courts were like, okay, so we're just going to pretend we're blind when it comes to um, rights that aren't written down. And like, that is literally the opposite of what the Ninth Amendment says. And the 14th Amendment is kind of the same thing for the states under the Privileges or Immunities Clause, essentially the same kind of thing. So um, Randy Barnett's view and the people of, who believe in something called judicial engagement are like, hey, it said not to ignore unenumerated rights, rights that aren't written down. So we shouldn't be ignoring them and we shouldn't be protecting them less for like no reason. Um, and the theory boils down to that, like, you err on the side of liberty to protect rights because, you know, we can limit speech rights in certain cases or, you know, Second Amendment rights. There's all rights have limits um, and that's OK, but you kind of err on the side of liberty. That's why the um, the bar is so high to restrict speech rights or gun rights or anything like that. So if you treat all rights like that and do your best to make sure that um, government in limiting rights is pursuing a constitutional goal through a constitutional means and doing its best to err on the side of liberty. But, you know, a thing is needed. That's OK. Um, then that's how you protect rights. But instead, over the years, you have, um, you know, upholding the Louisiana florist license like, oh, who's to say or what if like those aren't that's not protecting rights. That's just saying you don't care about those rights just because they're not written down, even though mm -hmm. the Ninth Amendment is like, hey, they still deserve protection. So um, I, I remember taking many constitutional law classes in undergrad because I'm a dork and I really wanted to learn and I just couldn't make sense of it. And I tried, but I'm like, why, why are we treating this like this? Why are these tests different? Like what, what's the uniting theory? And then hearing Randy Barnett speak at, um, I was back in the 2012 Bedsock convention. I'm like, oh, we should treat them all the same. Like, yeah, that makes a lot more sense to me because like, yeah, he's right about the ninth amendment and all this. Um, so I'm a big dork. I actually got to, um, I figured out that Gorsuch was an unenumerated rights fan through certain <laughs> things he was saying. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is so exciting because I'm a dork. And when I got to meet him, I like showed him my necklace because of course I have a necklace that says unenumerated rights. And, um, and he's like, oh, you like the ninth amendment too. And I'm like, I love you so much. Like, yeah, you're an unenumerated rights fan. And part of the reason it's so exciting is because even though I'm with the Borks on antitrust, um, when Judge Bork was being nominated to the Supreme Court um, and he was asked about the Ninth Amendment, he said, essentially, it's no different than an inkblot. And I'm like, mm, no, it's not. It's literally right there. You don't get to pick and choose. Um, so I love his his views on antitrust. And I think he has some great work there. But I can't stand his unenumerated rights work. So to have a conservative nominee go from that to Gorsuch saying it means what it says, I was like, ah, this is so exciting. Because, again, this is what I get excited about. So so somebody who's a, a total Ninth Amendment ignoramus, does that play in any way in, in the attempts currently to the, the politically visible attempts to pour legal content into the, the theories around Second Amendment law and probably more saliently abortion law, which is obviously derived from a very controversial interpretation of the 14th? For sure. So um, I, I, you know, I haven't read like a lot of the abortion um, Supreme Court opinions in years. I've been focusing actually a lot on third party doctrine under the Fourth Amendment, other nerd stuff. 
But um, but for for gun rights, it just doesn't need to because it's it's an enumerated right, and people just mm-hmm. go straight to the Second Amendment. But for for anything we do, basically, it's um. In, in the best reading, in my view, at least, it's really about erring on the side of liberty, that you can regulate things, but there has to be constitutional means, ends, and reason, just like when you regulate the First or Second or Fourth Amendment. But, but here's just what yeah. I'm, I'm trying to understand. Again, as, as a total idiot, gun law refers to the Second, abortion to the 14th. But to get from these amendments to where we are on those two issues still required a lot of assumptions about erring on the side of liberty, Right. Right. So did they still have to use Ninth Amendment logic to get there or something completely different? They did. But um, but I again, it's been so long mm. since I read them. But I think if I recall correctly, they, they went towards more substantive due process ra- rather than uh, privileges or immunities. Mm. And basically, like substantive due process, in the opinion of a lot of people on my side, is a little wishy-washier. But we would have preferred the use of um, of. Um, uh, privileges or immunities, because it's a more direct reference to um, to earlier things in the Constitution. Like if I if I recall correctly, between the Bill of Rights and the um, sorry the Bill of all the amendments and the Constitution itself, there's three unenumerated rights references and privileges or immunities. Like if you go back to original text, it was very like clearly understood to mean unenumerated rights. So we just prefer when you use that method. I see. Real dork stuff, like real like. OCD dorks. <laughs> so if I can try to translate it back to idiot speak, there are different parts of the Bill of Rights that call for different tools of analysis. And while second and 14th have, have their own interpretive tradition, unenumerated right is another. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, so much of it was just like, hey, we think you guys are going to mess these up the most. So we're going to list these. But we think you're going to mess up others. And so we're going to say again that if it's not listed, it still has protection. So judges were like, I can't hear you. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, let's, shall we get into tech regulation at all? Yes. Shall we get move move our. Yeah, there's just so much more I, I want to learn and understand here from Shoshana. But yes, onward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things we d- definitely wanted to ask you about was Section 230. I'm already feeling my blood boiling. No, I mean, I, I think, I mean, just just to start, I think, so for me, like, even before coming into this conversation, Adam and I were like, because uh, I'm not as plugged into all of this as Adam is for his for his work. And so I, I have heard the word Section 230, and I have a vague understanding that it has to do with tech and uh, and free speech. But that's kind of all I, I knew before Adam prepped me for this question. For the for, say, others who have perhaps only been experiencing it via osmosis, would you mind just, first of all, just explaining what what it is and what's at stake and what the questions are that it brings up. So if you do something illegal online, you're liable. All Section 230 says if is if you do something illegal on Twitter, Twitter is not liable because Twitter didn't do the thing. Um, if Twitter itself, like its company, does something illegal on Facebook, Twitter is still liable and Facebook is not liable. Um, and if someone goes crazy in the comments section of your mom's blog and posts illegal stuff, your mom is not liable. Um, and the reason it actually started was because um, if you know the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, um, it's actually kind of all because of them. Um, so Stratton Oakmont was like super corrupt and like there's documentaries about it. But um, on a very early platform in the, in the 90s called Prodigy, um, someone said like they're a scam. Like they said horrible things about Stratton Oakmont and they were right, but no one knew it at the time. So Stratton Oakmont not only sued the guy saying it, but they sued Prodigy. Prodigy's like, what the heck? Like we didn't post this. And they're like, well, you said you moderate and you keep your stuff family friendly. That's not family friendly. And then they're like, what the heck? So they go to court and um, 
And the judge is like, yeah, you said you keep stuff family friendly. Why is there one bad thing on your entire platform? Um, and and so thankfully, Stratton Oakmont didn't want money. They just wanted the comment taken down. So that happened. And then um, uh, two members of Congress, because uh, current Senator Wyden and, um, uh, and former uh, Congressman Chris Cox, um, Wyden's a Democrat, Cox is a Republican. They used to nerd together a lot and want to do whatever bipartisan stuff they could. And they're like, uh, hey, this is a problem that if people try to take care of their users and keep a platform safe, that they're punished. So they're like, hey, Section 230, if, um, you know, if you moderate, you're still not liable for random people's stuff. Because before it was assumed if you don't touch anything, you don't try to keep users safe, you won't be liable. If you try to protect your users and moderate stuff, then you are liable for random people's stuff. So um, it's a really bad incentive without it. And I'm not saying that the Internet's perfect with 230. Of course, the Internet sucks sometimes. But like harming 230 is not going to help because any uh, almost any change I've seen proposed. To 230 brings us right back to that dilemma, which is known as the moderator's dilemma. Like, don't touch anything. Don't try to keep your user safe. No liability. Um, for the most part, there, there's some question there, but it's it's really understood that way. And um, Or try to keep users safe. And for everything you miss, you can be sued. That's crazy. And it, there's so many layers in there because like, um, you know, there was a heckler's veto with Stratton Oakmont. They're like, hey, I don't like this. I'm going to sue you. Um, and they went through court to take it down. If you get sued every time there's a bad review of a company on Yelp or ZocDoc, like a bad review of a doctor, like they're going to be like, we don't need this lawsuit. We're going to just take it down. It's not worth it. Let alone the new upstarts who are like, you, you, know, you being the platform. Like yeah. if you're Yelp yeah, yeah, exactly. and every time there is a, a, a post against whatever, like restaurant on yeah. Yelp, Yelp can get sued for that post. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Yelp's not going to want to deal with it. They'll be like, fine, we'll take it down. Like, we don't need this. Which for Yelp means undermining their entire business model. Yeah. Yeah. There's only positive reviews. Like, I love this restaurant. <laughs> you know, that's all. That's all. Or no reviews at all. We're yeah. just a restaurant locator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because they're not going to want that user content. And it's any user content. It's not, you know, people think about it like, um, like the big platforms. But there's so many other places this applies to. It's mm -hmm. Etsy. So if I actually got section 230 hairpins. I'm a really big dork. So I got glitter hairpins and um, and the seller eventually asked me, she's like, okay, like, why do you keep making, you know, I'm thank you for your return customer service, but like, why do you keep wanting S230 hairpins? And I explained to her like, hey, let's say we did something illegal here. We would be liable. That would be where the liability is. It wouldn't be on Etsy. And that means that sellers can make mistakes. They can do bad things, but that like, they'll be held accountable rather than the platform that doesn't even necessarily know about this stuff. And she's like, oh, that makes sense. And so I recently had her make another for a friend who's also on this stuff. And she's like, thank you. And keep fighting the fight. <laughs> and I'm like, yay, made a convert. But um, I mean, it's true because it's Etsy. It's literally your mom's blog, any comment section, even um, Peloton, like they have leaderboards. There was a case where people were doing like QAnon names and uh, Peloton is like, nope, we're taking that down. We do not need conspiracy theories being spread here. But if, because they're moderating, they would be liable if there was like some illegal or libel stuff there. It's just, it's so far reaching. Okay, let's dig into this, but I just realized that Usually when we edit the episode, I do the editing and then I send it to Vanessa to listen. And she tends to listen to podcasts in 1.5, 1.7, whatever speed. 1.5. 1 1.5, right? I don't think she'll be able to do it with you. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I am not. a fast talker. <laughs> hmm. So what was I saying before my insightful joke? <laughs> yes. Okay. So the the consequences of of creating the, of ha having had this liability, the, the, the liability that existed 
by default before Section 230, essentially, was on one hand, you're liable if somebody is, is posting crazy shitty things on your, on your platform. But at the same right. time, you, are, you can potentially be liable to your decisions to remove or not remove things because everything on the platform is your editorial responsibility. You're responsible for something that got posted, but also potentially you're also responsible for your decision to remove content. Right. And the reason that this distinction is important is that's what allows the current push for reforming 230 to gain bipartisan support. It's become my refrain on the podcast that if an idea in our current moment is gaining bipartisan support, maybe we should be very suspicious of that idea. And what idea is gaining more bizarre, incoherent, bipartisan energy than reforming Section 230, where on the left, the support comes from a desire to force Facebook and Twitter to editorialize their content even more aggressively, banning fake news and hate speech. And on the right... It's about government enjoining platforms from taking down content in the name of, I don't right. know, viewpoint diversity. You don't get to kick Trump off the platform while you still have Biden on, or you don't get to ban Infowars while you still have right. the New York Times. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Um, and it, it's so I would break it down a little further just to I mean, you're totally right about that. The right's like, hey, don't take our content down. And the left is like, take down more content. Um, but then you also have this like protect the children stuff like, oh, you're not mm -hmm. protecting the children enough. And if there's like one piece of bad anti-children content on your platform, then you lose 230 liability. And then I'm like, well, yeah, then they just won't moderate. And then there's going to be lots of that. So that's not helping anyone. Um, and that comes from the right a lot of times. And on the left, there's some people saying, well, our content's being taken down a bunch too. It's like, well, one, on the top level, you have to realize that moderation is hard. Like even at the smallest level, I used to moderate for a, um, a Facebook page of a guy running for governor. There was someone in the comments making like, just being crazy and swearing a lot. And I love swearing, but I'm like, okay, this guy's swearing on our governor. The guy wants to be governor. Like, this isn't good. So I removed him. And then I got a message from the higher up saying, look, I know that he sounded off, but he's actually a supporter. I know you couldn't tell. I'm like, what? The How would I have known? But they understood. But regular people don't understand that. They're like, oh, tech companies just hate us. And I'm like, no, they're trying to balance interests and like figure out what you mean. And they, they make errors. Well, you know, sometimes there can be malice for sure. But overall, they're, they're, balancing so much they're trying to catch spammers um you know in my dms i would have a, like basically nigerian prince type scammers and romance scammers but i get almost none of them now because they figured out what they're doing similarly so whereas i used to get maybe 10 of them a day now maybe once a month and i used to mess with them and and kind of learn about what they were doing so i kind of miss that but twitter's gotten really good at that kind of moderation but it evolves and there's going to be a lot of false positives and negatives. And it, it's just a difficult thing. And it's also um, something that people that I think forget early internet or have not lived through early internet. Vanessa yeah. and I are, are old. Like you, I think you reminded us how old we are. <laughs> but early internet like showed you how, like if you think that Twitter is accessible now and you'll be right, things were so much worse in those <laughs> ancient days of, of the wild west internet. And, You know, I remember at some point forgetting how bad it was. And then working as an editor seven, eight years ago on a newspaper, Haaretz, I was involved in moderating. We had to, all of us, take turns doing the, 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 the dark chore of looking the 
this straight in the eye and, and do some moderating on the comment section. So but every, every time that it was your turn to put in an hour of moderation, you'd see the person before you coming in and their eyes were just dead and you see that the, the, <laughs> their skin was just turned sallow. They got wrinkles that weren't there before. And it was hearts. So the comments spanned from neo-Nazi manifestos wild conspiracy theories with the the, the, world, the words Rothschild used un uncomfortably yeah. often. And there was no algorithm to make our job easier. We had to deal with this deluge of horrors manually. So you'd go in and do control F for you know the most common words like Rothschilds and Holocaust and that Hitler and just deleted all the comments that included those words first. And then obviously at some point the <laughs> the editor-in-chief comes to me and says Adam, I just got a complaint from one of our oldest subscribers. He's saying his comment isn't showing up. He's a history professor, and he wrote this trenchant response to the article about Hitler and the Holocaust, and it's just not showing up. Yeah, it's hard. It's hell. It's hell. I, I do not think human beings were meant to moderate internet comments. It's the closest thing we have to a Dementor's kiss. <laughs> but I mean, I think to Shoshana's point earlier, I mean, like, but if the if the companies aren't incentivized to do it at all, because if they do a little bit, they're then you get putting, all the um, things that we're trying to get out of the internet, right, in right, full right. force. What we're not right. going to get is 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 good regulation. So what we're going to get is either this fiendish compromise with technology, and that we're kind of finagling some algorithmic solution. Or nothing, because nobody right. is going to do more to moderate than we're doing now. So probably our options are least likely, no comment sections at all, no social media, no blogging, the end of that. More likely what we have now in some degree <laughs> or another, or open the gates of Hades. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, I wish everyone who talks about this policy had spent like a month moderating anything yeah. because they would understand the problem so much better. And it's hard. There's even been studies about this where like experienced moderators who are known to be good at their jobs will make different decisions depending on the moderator. Right. And it's understandable. Um, you know, there's there's just so many. It, it's a difficult job. Um, let alone like if we get rid of 230 protection, someone trying to start the next big platform will be like out of luck. That's why uh, MeWe, which is a new platform that's basically like trying to protect privacy rights more, their founder had an op-ed being like, yo, we need 230 because without this, like there's so much bad stuff we couldn't get rid of. We wouldn't be able to operate. And like, you know, people already buy into the bigger platforms. And if everything's a cesspool, but maybe the bigger platforms can handle the liability a little bit more because they have lawyers, you know, I mean, me, we would definitely not moderate, but Twitter and Facebook might and just say, hey, we're taking on the liability and um, and then new platforms could never compete. And that's the kind of regulatory right. stuff I worry about. Um, the bigger guys can handle it better. And honestly, to their credit, more so than any other time I've seen, they fought regulations, not even so much for themselves, but for consumers and for competitors. Um, even it, it was killing me because in one uh, in the, one of the last hearings, Jack was citing a paper by one of my favorite scholars about like his idea of protocols over platforms and all that means. This is Jack Dorsey, Twitter's Jack Dorsey. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah the Twitter's you're, you're just Jack. first name basis. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. You know Jack. <laughs> no, he, he's liked like three of my tweets ever. So we're ah. basically best friends. 
Um, but he had the protocol over platform ideas, basically like, you know how you can get plugins for Google Chrome that do different things. You can change your text to Comic Sans. You can have your Ebates plugin and get coupons, or you can have none of that if you don't do a lot of online shopping and you don't care what font it is. It's that kind of concept where like moderation could be like, hey, I want more of this. I don't want this. And you put users in charge. You still need, you know, moderation and you still need some higher up people. But um, it's a really cool idea. And it's something that I think is worthwhile in a lot of cases. Of course, nobody asked him about it. It was just all the same question, demonizing them. And the politicians are just so unserious about it. There's exceptions for sure. But um, most of them just aren't serious and they want to turn them into punching bags. Well, these companies, I to their credit, for the most part, and for a long time have been like fighting regulations and fighting harming 230 so that other other platforms can start up and so that they can better serve consumers. You don't often see that. Usually you're like, oh no, regulate us and like, you know, put in regulations that are going to stop any competitor. Um, and eventually I, I kind of understand why some of them are going to give in because it makes them look so bad to oppose regulations mm-hmm. when people don't understand what's going on. But it's, it's really, it, it just really sucks because Twitter like outed MySpace and MySpace isn't even much of a thing anymore. And Tom just travels the world taking photos. Like he doesn't run his platform anymore because it wasn't good and people didn't like it anymore. Like I want, like if Twitter succeeds, cool. If it fails, cool. Like I don't really care. I mean, like it sucks for me a little because I have a lot of followers, but I'll I'll go to another platform if people use it more. But I want those platforms to have that chance rather than a thing. Um, you're going to have to take on all this liability for stuff you don't even know about or you didn't even realize is there. That's just not personal responsibility. And it's not like a good precedent to set. And it's not how law should work. But instead, you have all these politicians pushing it because um, it's an easy lie for constituents or because they don't understand how it works and they're not talking to experts. And that's really frustrating. Before we got on this call, Adam asked me, "So, are you pro tech regulation or against?" And I was like, "I was like, well, I think in theory, I'm actually, I am pro tech regulation on the condition." I think I was waving a people, knife while I said that. Also, <laughs> <laughs> on the condition that the people putting forth the regulation understand how tech works and understand the ramifications of the proposals that they're putting forward. If that were the case, then yes, I would be pro-tech regulation. Um, And so my question for you is, to what extent is there correlation between um, like understanding of the potential uh, effects of proposals that have been put forth so far? Um, And is there any way we can if, if, if that gap is wide, is there any way we can bring that closer together? <laughs> so a big part of the problem is that there's not a lot of incentive to understand it, because if you yell at big tech and you show your constituents, you're going to get donations and you're going to get support um, because it's just an easy punching bag. There's real exceptions mm-hmm. like that. Like Ben Sass um, has been amazing on this. He's, he like asks real questions and he's thoughtful about it and he doesn't push bad ideas. Or Ron Wyden, who, you know, created Section 230, he's like, hey, guys, this is still a good idea. Like, this is still how things work. This is still how incentives work. And he's been there Mm -hmm. doing good stuff. There's others, too. Um, Those are just top of mind. There's other people who are quieter because they're like, I'm not part of this mess. I'm not going to get involved. But most Like Ted Cruz. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, he's been super quiet, you know. (laughs) Um, But there's... Um, a lot of the loudest voices like Cruz and like Hawley are just, they know that if they yell about big tech, they'll get lots and lots of attention. And that's where the incentives are just, you know, in the same way that getting rid of 230 recreates the incentives of the moderator's dilemma, uh, having 230 creates the nicest punching bag for politicians who don't really care about policy outcomes and care more about just 
yelling at people. And and some people, I think, misunderstand the law. Like, I don't want to say that all politicians are bad. I think some of them are just bad at their job. Yeah, sometimes they're bad at their job, for sure. And there are, like, one of the things that I think is under-talked about, like, privacy regulation, especially when we have the possibility of a 50-state patchwork of privacy regulation and some real privacy problems. I'm very open to federal privacy regulation there, and a lot of the same scholars who want to protect 230 are very open there. But um, when it comes to 230, most politicians are not pursuing goals that can be solved by amending 230, Um, A lot of times they want to fix the First Amendment. They're like, oh, you're not moderating in an exact equal way. Well, you're not neutral. One, 230 doesn't require neutrality. Two, the ability not to be neutral is that's the First Amendment. They're angry at the First Amendment, not at 230. And it's frustrating, but I try to remind them like, hey, you don't like the First Amendment. (laughs) It's not about 230, guys. And amusingly, those are the same people who really understand or pretend to understand the difference between um, equality of opportunity and quality of outcome. Oh, yeah. But they conveniently abandon this commitment when it comes to speech. Conservatives really like to harp on this point when it comes to inequalities between racial groups or between men and women. They'll then cork their head, shrug, and and say, well, equality of opportunity doesn't mean equality of outcome. But then apparently they have an amnesia when equality of opportunity comes for their speech. Get the fuck out of here. Okay. Vented enough. Let's try to be fair now with both sides in their criticism of 230. Let's let's steel man them for a second. As you may know, we just had a conversation with Neil Ferguson. Yeah. And when I wasn't melting at his his, his dulcet Scottish accent, I was arguing with him about the future of Section 230. So while I disagree with him, I think he does make the most persuasive argument from the right. So let's start there. In his view, we need more power to be able to get at big tech. Right now, they're enjoying unprecedented impunity. We need to create at least some structure of liability to bring them down to size. It's actually funny because Neil and I got into a bit of a misunderstanding. He, he, to make his case, he referred to even the Supreme Court has been talking about social media as the new town square, which was a reference to a Kennedy opinion from a few years ago. But I thought he was referring to the more recent Justice Thomas comments in his bizarre tirade a few oh, yeah. weeks ago, which I, I found bizarre. I don't know oh, what you think. I'm with you. Oh my gosh, I was so mad. <laughs> so he, he, he used that reference that he, what he saw as a consensus in even the Supreme Court that social media being the new town square as implying that social media therefore needs to be held to a higher standard of accountability. And the fact that we are unable to chip away at their power right now, that they're so impregnable legally, is is a huge problem for democracy. And we're already seeing how big tech is abusing its role as the public square. It silenced the lab leak hypothesis until it didn't. It silences conservative views that it has deemed hateful and inciting. And tomorrow, the views that Facebook and Twitter consider hateful and inciting might be things that today we, we take for granted. And given that, again, I'm, I'm trying to steal man Neil, it is incumbent on us to use the tools available to make some cracks in the legal wall that protects big tech. At the moment, the available spade bit is amending Section 230, and in doing so, uh, opening up a possibility for lawsuits. So do you agree, or should we just wait until 
Facebook decides that posting that Taiwan should be an independent country constitutes hate speech. So there's a couple of things at the at the highest level. These companies are extremely regulated in so many ways. Even Facebook, when they inflated video views, like that was crap. They shouldn't have done that, and that was terrible. But they, the the um, the FTC brought action against them and won. They're like, oh, you can't just inflate video views and charge people for video views that didn't happen. So when but these, this is from a consumer-minded perspective, oh, yeah. right? This is not about speech. This is not about oh, yeah. being the public square or the First Amendment. But we should never think about it that way because. Imagine hmm. government having control about over speech. We wouldn't be allowed to say stuff against the government anywhere on the internet. Like that's a way bigger threat in so many cases. And we've seen government do stuff like that, like from, you know, cracking down on communist speech. Like, yeah, I'm not communist, but also like I'm not for persecuting people for being wrong in my view or having different opinions. So there's way there's a way bigger danger there. Um also, Trump had violated the terms of service of all these platforms so many times that like yeah, I mean, it, it's it kind of sucks when you can't view the president's stuff. And I think they, you know, it should be up to the platform to decide. But they they allowed so him so much extra privilege there that, like, you know, it, to me, the argument that, like, oh, it was just arbitrary. is like, no, he, he you know, violated it lots of times. Right, right. But but it, it goes yeah. beyond him violating the, the terms of service. Right. You know, the, the, the cliche response, which has some merit to it, is they kick off Trump, but they, they, they keep on Iran's Ayatollah or they, they keep um, other accounts that right. propagate anti-Semitism or calls for violence. One example that stuck with me is, um, I, I brought it up in our interview with... Nadavayal. Right. I, I mentioned that I, I interviewed for, for a story that I worked on once, an internet freedom activist from Ethiopia who collected hundreds of videos... Uh, from from around the country of people calling for genocide, not only calling for genocide, but actually giving specific information of w in which neighborhoods should the genocide com be commenced. And she brought it to Facebook and said, look, all of this is happening under your noses. And and Facebook responded, sorry, we, we, we can't catch these videos because we don't understand the language. So sure, part of it is that Facebook is is biased to being hyper vigilant to American politics and to some extent China, but much more reckless with with the rest of the world. Sure. This certainly is a problem that goes beyond Trump uh, blatantly violated the the terms of service and and was therefore justifiably kicked out. But part of the issue too is that when it comes to other countries and and I it shouldn't be an issue here but it's becoming one there's soft power questions that if you allow the ayatollah to stay up maybe then the citizens of Iran have some more access to a democratizing force. And it's it's a balance and I don't know where the line should be. I'm terrible at foreign policy personally like it's not something that I would know where to draw the line but there are real questions when it comes to law enforcement when it comes to, um, uh, you know, how we treat other countries or how companies treat other countries, even our country. Another good example here is that I, one of the largest platforms had told me that um, a lot of times, um, and, and it's not an infrequent occurrence, that um, one agency of government will say, this content is dangerous, take it down. It, it's dangerous, We this shouldn't be on here. And they're like, okay. Then another agency would say, why did you take that down? We were monitoring that. Like, how are they supposed to know? And there's a right. lot of different kind of interests. So in certain countries, you know, well, uh, this, there was actually a really great New York Times piece about Clubhouse with this, that it's harder 
for um, oppressing countries to moderate and to, to keep an eye on, on, on dissidents, basically, because it's audio-based, it doesn't record, so they can't go back through hours and hours, and they can't even always figure out who's talking, like who really is talking, um, and that it's become a really great liberalizing force because of it, because people can say things that they might not otherwise have been able to say. Oh, I've and heard it, that before. Yeah, and it's difficult. I'm, and I'm it's, saying uh, it dourly because I remember the same kind of oh, yeah. hopeful sentiments around the Arab Spring. Oh yeah, yeah, and it, it'll it'll change. And they were saying that it's beginning to change, and that they're they're dedicating more people to looking at it. But because um, these countries, the the oppressive governments, get to determine what companies are allowed there, these companies have to determine is it good. I mean, there, there's lots of you know, of course. Um, you know, making money is one consideration, but another consideration genuinely is, um, will even with these limits, is it still better and a more liberalizing force? And will they get more freedom by having this or will it do more harm than good? So I think a lot of times that plays in. And one thing too, is that I don't even think the U S government has, um, decided the way it thinks about it. So if it hasn't decided and we don't have something to go by there, they have to figure out their own levels of that, of those kinds of questions. And in the U.S., if a president is kicked off, we shouldn't have to worry that a platform will be targeted um, by the government. But we're starting to have to worry about that. And that freaks me out. I know it's not unique. Like in, in the past, in history, stuff like this has happened before in the United States. But I don't want to have to live in a country where um, if the president's kicked off, that the, the company doesn't get to exist anymore. That's really freaky to me because those are the questions they're dealing with in Iran and in China and stuff like that. Um, so I think there's a lot of levels of consideration too. There, there's also definitely like um, subjective questions, and I'm not saying they make every every decision even handedly. But part of it too, you know, they're being pressured by Republicans for regulation and Democrats for regulation, and they're trying to keep their platforms as open as possible. So because of that pressure, they're going to make decisions according to that. Um, without that pressure, I genuinely don't know what they would have done um, if they weren't in the middle of all these regulation debates. I don't know how it would have gone um, because it's easy to make one argument or the other. Um, and I think each side would make one argument or the other. But it, it's it's you know, it, it puts them in a really bad place of when it comes to moderation. Facebook's going through this now. Um, and, and even just from like a philosophical standpoint, like I'm not sure the best answer. Sometimes I think leaving the bad stuff up is the best answer because you get it's, it's sometimes better that bad stuff is out in the open. But other times when bad stuff is out in the open, it gains more followers. But is it is it really gaining more followers or would it have gone somewhere dark and it would still have the same followers just in a darker place that we couldn't find it as easily? These are really difficult questions. And I think that lack of data, lack of studying it, lack of um, agreement from all different kinds of parties um, is something that's really difficult. Um, and, and I wish that it would be a little bit easier of a question, but it's something where I, I don't know the answer of, of what the best way is. But I'm far more concerned that government is going to say, you disagree with us, with us we're going to target you, than, hey, um, we're kicking some people off our platform in an arbitrary way. So, okay, so that's your response. And actually, I, I think I agree with, I'm going to put it at somewhere between 68 to 78% of what you say. <laughs> Let's take the, the liberal argument at, sure. at, at its strongest. And... Let's not talk about hate speech because I think hate speech is such a such a canard right now for 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 the left, and I don't I I can't even take it seriously in the way that it's being used right now. But some of the better arguments is like there is an effect of psychological radicalization that's inherent to the way that these platforms are built. It's in their internal logic to radicalize. We talked about uh, about this with Rebecca Henderson. 
from Harvard Business School and with a few others, uh, the the damage that these platforms cause because of the way that they're designed to our public discourse, to our ability to judge fact, to our ability to communicate with each other and have healthy disagreements is utterly devastating. So is this something that we should just tolerate such, a, such harm to our polity? Shouldn't government have some ability to protect against and counteract such a malignant influence that, that is manifestly injurious to the stability of our political system and to the sanity of our public? So overall, I tend to disagree broadly. And, and I, it, the reason is actually even dorkier than maybe other things I've said. But I watch a lot of Turner Classic movies. And it's been interesting for me to watch movies, especially from the 60s and 50s, about politics at the time and how it was perceived. And it's a lot of the same stuff. You know, there wasn't social media, but there were incentives for politicians to go out there and call each other horrible, horrible things to gain supporters. Like the Manchurian candidate has a lot of that in there and like how it aids the enemy and stuff. Um, I was shocked how, I you know, genuinely shocked how much of that was in there and how bad the incentives were then. And I'm not saying it's not like there aren't all additional unique uniquely bad incentives, but there's also a lot of good that happens because of it. Like, um, you know, I make fun of people who are just mean on, on my timeline and then I just dismiss them. But then for people who want to talk, sometimes those mean people will be like, hey, I was mean. I'm going to stop. I'm interested in talking now. And like, they'll be genuine about it. And other people, like, I can just ask anyone any question. Like, I know all these scholars, like, like top 100 cited scholars in their area because um, I tweeted them questions and like now we're friends. Like there's so much good that can happen there. And it's not to say there aren't problems. And there there's a lot that I worry about, especially with like the incentive to make horrible things go viral. This is where I think a lot of my attention is right now in, in terms yeah. of how those incentives are uh, really rotting our, our media infrastructure. And the business model itself. It's not, it's the incentives as connected with the way they make money it seems right. kind of set up for a lot of the ill effects that we're feeling even um in uh in south park when they had uh, again i'm a big dork i just watch cartoons and tcm nothing in between um but south park had this great episode about like i forgot what it was called but like action news and they were trying to outdo puppy videos so then they created this news channel where they would just lie about stuff and, you know, it was all like crazy and, and obviously ridiculous. But I think these incentives have been around for a while. Sometimes I think some of it's more visible. I, I don't know that that none of it's new. I think there are real new components that we have to grapple with. But I, part of me is also just an optimist where it's like human society tends to get past this kind of stuff and like, you know, innovation begets more innovation that can sometimes fix problems and former innovations. But, um, you know, we used to live in a country where people would just call each other, like politicians would call each other horrible things in like the 17 and 1800s. I, I forget what it was, but like some like just crazy like stuff that even by today's standards, we're like, what? Like if you go back and read some of that stuff, it, it's really crazy. But there, there is more incentive to do it today in certain ways and to raise money. And there is scale. I think yeah. the, the scale is unprecedented. And, oh, and it, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the consequences of that to our, uh, to our psyche and to our ability to, to interface with reality yeah. is enormous. I really worry about underestimating just how different the, the, the scale is to our ability to, to communicate as a society. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the way people talk to each other these days is awful. But in certain cases, I think it's it might just be a bit different in certain ways. Just for the an example, like there was once a time when like 
if you like were gay and like people knew you were gay, you were kind of like excommunicated from society, like in a lot of ways. And now you can say that, but you can't say other things. And not to say it should be one way or the other. Like, I don't want to excommunicate people because they're gay because that's horrible. But it's interesting how that's changed. And now it's like, if you say certain other things, half the people won't listen to you and half the people will take you in as their own. And it's something that like, I don't think it's good that it's shifted. I wish it would just kind of all go away and we could be humans. Right, together. it will all be better. But the thing, the the, the, the difference is, and again, it's, there's no idealization of the past for my, for me. But depending on what community you grew up in, it could be very very different. If you grew up gay in an ultra orthodox right. Jewish society or an evangelical, like that's one thing. If you grew up gay in a you know suburban American. Uh, Protestant family that might be uncomfortable, but you'll much more easily leave that community yeah. and find yourself elsewhere than in, in, in the former. So there's a lot of difference in terms of the ability to exit a certain group. Um, but escapability definitely is a big part of it. Whereas with social media, obviously you can just turn it off. But I think that the, that the, you know, the brain damage that this thing is, is potentially causing to people to feel that when they are attacked, they are attacked by the whole world. Like yeah. their loneliness is existential. It's not like they need to just get, like, get a license, get a car, get out of town and not, you know, talk to their, to their parents and their old neighbors ever again, start a new life. They can't. First, the machine has created the illusion that this is the entire world, which is in itself a problem. Oh, yeah. And then... Once this is the entire world, you are increasingly prone to getting excommunicated, to be ostracized in a way that to you subjectively seems like the end of your life. And sometimes not even subjectively. Just consider all the people whose resumes have been blotched because of things they said on Twitter. I often talk to people who, who got canceled, but recently I had a few conversations and I heard stories of, you know, random people not celebrities working class who just had uh, a little twitter ostracism uh, performed on them because they 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 got on somebody's radar online and their lives were ruined and i i, I had some of those conversations a couple of weeks ago and it, you know it's easy to forget that some of those stupid cancellation stories have have real severe human cost. It's easy to get wrapped up in the, the culture war aspect of it, which, which allows some distance and get wrapped up in the, in the rage and the, and the theoretical argumentation. But there are real, there's real suffering behind many of those stories. And there are so many stories that aren't heard, that don't get published in the New York Times, like the Smith College story or in the Daily Caller. Yeah. So th I think this is still, this is new. Yeah. And then, and then you have this pathology blown up to, 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 to a national scale where even um, politicians and people who are supposed to be the responsible adults in the room are mimicking this insane behavior where they're paying more attention to this, taking their signals from that more than from people like you who are policy oriented. I think, I think this cyclonic effect is truly destructive and it can't be brushed away by saying the next technology will solve it at least we can't depend on on it being so yeah. you might be able to tell i'm not a tech optimist you know it's funny I, I i totally get where you're coming from and there's definitely days when i'm like oh lord like what next or like i'm seeing this now and i i'm not saying that it'll all definitely go away but i think that there is some of it will i think there you know that there's certain trade-offs one thing too is like 
it's interesting, but like how, the, so the internet's like on the good side of this course, it's done stuff like if you have mental illness, you can talk about it and find your people and find people who understand. Whereas people with mental illness used to be like, oh, get over it or, oh, it's just you. But between that and even like um, uh, autoimmune diseases, that's one area where it's been night and day since social media really got um, off its feet. I used to you know, it took me um, 20 doctors to get an endometriosis diagnosis. Some of them said, you're lying, go to the mall, you're making it up, you just want to get out of school. I was a straight A student. Like, why would I want to get out of school? Like, I was like, no, I want to go to school. I'm just really, really, really sick. And they didn't believe me. But now finding doctors is so much easier, not only because of online communities, but um, through like ZocDoc. A lot of times I'll see reviews saying, hey, he didn't listen to a thing I said. If you have fibromyalgia, like I also, I have a bunch of diseases. I'm fine. I just have a bunch of diseases. These like, you know, don't go here. But um, I found doctors so much easier and faster. Um, I talk about it online and people message me like, hey, I'm having these symptoms. Like, is this what you had? And I'll be like, you know, I'm not a doctor, but you know, it might be worth seeing this kind of doctor, checking out this kind of stuff. Here's some resources. Whereas when, you know, it started for me, I just had a hope that my mom's friends like knew some stuff about it and that, you know, Google was there, but the the real community wasn't yet. And there's, um, you know, whether it's stuff like that or even uh, kids who just kind of feel alone, being able to find people who like the same stuff they do. So I, I, you know, I'm an optimist because of all that stuff, not to say that there's not a lot of bad stuff also coming with it, but I kind of think it's it's moving in the right direction, but there's real stuff we have to consider. You know, one one tiny thing is like, you know, I get alerts about my screen time, little things like that. And I think there's there's good things like that that we can embrace. And, That's a very Tristan Harris approach. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like there's like little things that can grow and that we can do better with um, more social media to get us offline. Like I love all trails and people leave reviews like, hey, there's a windstorm yesterday. There's supposed to be one again tomorrow. So if you're hiking tomorrow, know this. I was chased by bears on a trail. Like you should know this because this trail, there might be bears <laughs> who chase you. But, you know, the real community to get you offline and to like track good stuff. I think there's a lot of opportunity, but when it comes to the the real crap of it, I'm still struggling with how to combat it, how to get people outside their own little heads, how to um, reduce bad incentives. And then I'm a real dork, but I always go back to like, well, if men were angels, no government would be needed and we wouldn't all need to like check each other and things kind of move in the right direction, but also sometimes they don't. So, you know, I, I end up kind of helpless there. I just don't think that government would do any better than the private right. sector. Right. But that's a question. My intuition is that as well. And I think uh, regardless of what regulatory solution we come up with, I really don't trust the people in Congress to actually be able to carry it through. Oh, yeah. So realistically, yes, looking at the current makeup of the the American government on the federal level, and not just, I don't trust them to do anything that is not idiotic. But I, I do want to try to push your libertarian instincts a little further. And, and I do understand that a lot of uh, the libertarian perspective comes from the recognition that no matter what perfect bill you envision in your head, it's not going to come out the way you think it will. I get that. Still. In an ideal, implausible world where you could actually tweak the law to reach the results you you want. Is is there room to regulate big tech in order to protect people's mental health? 
or like the EU did and create the right to be forgotten. Because a lot of the people that I talked to who, who were canceled, the consequences of the cancellation was that every time that they wanted to get a job, people oh, would yeah. search them up and would see all the sh- crap that people said about them, all the actual slander or bad faith rumor mongering. And, you know, all it takes is one person to say, you're racist. Right. Or you've assaulted someone or you attacked someone or think of all the defamation that gets hurled at people and just hangs there in public view with no consequences to the people spreading that. Those stories are so incredibly depressing because of how easy it is to besmirch people and essentially ruin their careers. You're describing the story of the florist whose life was ruined because of bad regulation. What about the people whose life is ruined because there is none? So um, one thing that that I worry about here is that if we get, if we allow people to say, Hey, there's bad stuff about me online. I can just get it taken down. That goes back to the heckler's veto. And you can't be warned about bad business. You can't be worried about people experiencing real problems, bad doctors. I mean, literally I had a gas. Not to mention Trump would be the person who would use that. Oh yeah, exactly. And that's it. I mean, again, to go back to South Park, Cartman is always the person who is going to, you know, make the most use of this. Right. Having botters go through all the comments and delete the bad ones. I mean, literally, I've left so many bad reviews for doctors and so many glowing ones. And they didn't love it. It's like, oh, well, this was a lie. I was a great doctor and all that. And um, I've left really glowing ones, too. It's actually become a problem because I keep like telling people, hey, here's some great doctors. And people keep going to them and they keep getting booked up. I'm like, crap, I shouldn't have told everyone about my great doctor. (laughs) No, it's a good problem to have, but it's That's the hipster's dilemma. Right, right, the hipster's dilemma. But I, I, you know, I feel awful for these people. And there's been other situations along these lines I've heard about that, like, have led people to the brink of suicide. And that's just, I mean, it's horrible. And I want to figure out ways where we can, like, maybe make people jump at stories less or do stuff like that less. I've had mobs go after me for wild things, not even joking, but um, because I was criticizing um, uh, Fleetwood Mac. I'm not even kidding you. Like, all these Baltic teens started harassing me for days because I was criticizing Fleetwood Mac. And then I was like joking around because they were dumb. Like they were being really dumb. And I'm like, you guys are, are being idiots. And then they just went after me for days and days. And like, I've dealt with stuff on like that, which is on a smaller scale than these people have. And there's real bad stuff online. Um, and it, it's terrible, but the alternative is just so much worse. And I'm not saying I'm not open to regulations because if, if someone comes up with an idea that can actually solve things, if there's um if there's ways to mitigate the bad effects, I'm I'm genuinely open to it. Just all the proposals I've seen, I'm like, okay, so we're bringing it right back to the moderator's dilemma and the heckler's veto. So abusive people, like people won't know. Like, and I, you know, I don't like when it's um done about like individuals. There used to be like a dating review site where like, oh, I dated this guy and he sucked, and that just that's crappy. I mean, I don't like it. But um, when it comes to reviewing bad businesses, like it it protect it's actual real consumer protection. Um, and more often than not, that stuff does real good rather than harm. So just one second on that Fleetwood Mac thing. That's just nuts. <laughs> like, did they, what were their like, just, just total tangible. What were their like hashtags? Was it like Mac attack or something? Like, did so, they like ra- rally behind something? Was, I genuinely couldn't figure out how they were finding each other. But one woman clued me in that a lot of them were not teens. Like it would be from one person tweeting on a million accounts because they have no life. Oh my um, goodness. And just like, okay. just who like to drag people online. And they even got this professor involved trying to get me in trouble at work. And I'm like, you're a professor flipping out over like me making a dumb joke. Like, oh my gosh. 
And it was just days of this stuff. Um, And it was just, (laughs) I'd never seen anything like it before. And so the person who clued me in kind of gave me some background there, but there's just wild communities of crazy, crazy people who just want to harm people online. And Twitter actually blocked a lot of them. They're like, no, they can't say they're going to kill you. So like if that's taken (laughs) down and like a bunch of that stuff, because I had to do Google Translate since it was in um, Cyrillic and I I can barely read oh, right, English. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, oh, man. And then on the flip side, what you were saying earlier about um, finding communities around, like, health-related stuff, like, that is a real a real thing. Uh, I have a friend who has a Facebook group that's just about this. And it kind of connects to, like, what we were talking about earlier in terms of, like, licensing, actually, and getting, like, certified for things. Because there's, there's like, a, a, a dearth of... Um, expertise that, that that doesn't necessarily come with a certificate, yes. right? There's like like other people actually have a lot of uh, knowledge to share that is a lot a lot of times more valuable than people that happen to have gone through the whole medical uh, like exam and gotten like the the rubber stamp or whatever. Um, and so that is a really in- interesting alternate use case of why social media is so powerful because it connects people and you're able to have those kinds of conversations that allow for a different type of knowledge sharing and validation of what is an authority. Exactly. That's such a great point, Vanessa. I was also just, it made me think that your point about connecting this to the, to the question of licensing, because you, this is, you can see how, whether it's from journalism or, or, you know, the, the think tank world in the world of politics, but there in many other fields, you can see how this is creating a lot of distress in the gilded communities Guild mm-hmm. from Guild, not Gold. And there's so much, or I guess both. It's so much, so much visceral reaction sometimes when people have their alternative groups of expertise that do not rely on people who went through the proper channels. Oh, yeah. And this can actually, it's funny to even bring it to Section 230. This can happen because of Section 230. Could you imagine the liability if Twitter could be sued by me giving medical advice online? Like, Mm. they'd be like, Shoshana, stop giving medical advice. Like, you can't help people anymore because, like, this is way too much liability. Well, for me, I'm like, yeah, see a doctor and do this. But here's stuff that's helped me, you know, consider, talk to your doctor about it. But, like, here are medical things that I had to go through because of symptoms that are really similar to yours. Or, like, see a doctor or try the supplement because omega-3 did this for me or gelatin for my joints. Like, all these different things. But, you know, and, and there's there's a value in licensing, but there's also a value in the in the stuff outside that, like the like stuff I learned about my diet. Like I apparently was putting on 20 pounds because of cauliflower and chickpeas. Like who would have thought? But I did this thing called Viome and um, I, I was at a loss. I'm like, let me just try something because I, I can't lose weight no matter what I'm doing. And I'm like, whoa, like 20 pounds gone because I cut out a few vegetables and like everyone thinks vegetables are healthy and they are, but for some people you can have food sensitivities that are really real. Um, but if, uh, if Twitter didn't have immunity, um, I could, you know, they could be sued for allowing people to talk about like real medical advice online. Um, and it's, you know, the problem is of course that we can get cracks and fake medical advice. Oh yeah. But telling someone to to cut out cauliflower is not going to harm someone. Like they just won't eat. Maybe they'll have broccoli instead or something. But um, there, I think there's more of the good stuff than the bad stuff, especially with that kind of stuff, because people are desperate for answers. And you know, there's there's idiots online spreading false stuff. But that's free speech too. Yeah, I think now that I'm done playing devil's advocate, I I largely agree with a lot of what you said, eh, especially that that I I don't see any serious regulatory proposals that that won't lead to worse results than than what we have right now what i disagree with you on is that the that the 
good things right now outweigh the bad. I think the bad still outweigh the good, but regulations could make right, it worse. Right. I can understand that. You know, I'm just such a big tech optimist, I guess, because of all the ways that served me, like all the cool people hmm. I've gotten to meet. Like, I'm not even kidding you. Like, I just, I'm really good at like talking to random people I want to meet. So like on, um, uh, what's it called on project runway, you know, the, the fashion show, I'm also a big seamstress and there was this one model and I just loved her style. So I found her on MySpace when I was a teenager and I'm like, hi, I think you're really cool. And we became friends and I'm like, whoa. And then like this other pinup model, I like, she and I are friends, let alone scholars and like politicians, like the amount of access I've had. And you know, my dad's a, a high school teacher. My mom's a massage therapist. I wasn't born into politics or anything, but I have all this access to like the coolest people who I would just want to ask questions of like, it's incredible to me, let alone all the medical advice that I found online. Like uh, literally I was getting sick all of the time and I'm like, okay, let me Google endometriosis and getting colds all the time. They're like, that sounds like fibromyalgia. My primary care missed it for years. She's like, oh, you're having a bad season. I'm like, it's like the 40th season. Like this isn't like an answer. And then the rheumatologist was like, oh yeah, you have fibromyalgia. How did no one catch that? But because of the internet and communities, I'm like, I have my diagnoses and like, I know who to go to. I found like, um, I mean, one doctor just found a bunch of diagnoses and he was amazing. But unless you find that really great doctor, you have to be your own advocate. And between that and my career and just hobbies, it, the access I have to information and to people is just unbelievable. It's something that would have never existed except for like online forums in the form of like normal forums or Twitter. But I guess all it all comes down to the fact of personal responsibility, the flip side of which I guess is our privilege. And I use this word cautiously. I wrote a whole essay about privilege. So I have a very complicated relationship with the word. I have very little interest in the way that the word is used to stigmatize people or as some form of reclamation of power. But I see it as sometimes the, the, the least obvious advantages that we get in life and, and the responsibility to use them. Yeah. And, and it's not easily schemable into you know skin color financial upbringing etc like i come from a very unprivileged social economic background but my but i still feel incredibly privileged because i had that mom that raised me with resilience and grandparents that that instilled in me the love of of literature and desire for education and just a love of humanities those are circumstances that i did not choose for myself i did not create for myself and even the hardships were to some, in some way important in my upbringing. So on all these accounts, I, I, I see myself as having won the lottery. Yeah. So, so a lot of the things that I'm able to cope with in life owe to those circumstances over which I had no power and, and for which I certainly deserve no credit. And that's my problem with some of the ways that a, a personal responsibility is talked about in the U.S. It's that it ignores that some people really don't have the, the mental tools to guard themselves against, say, a Twitter mob yeah. or to push themselves through hardships in school. Privilege is way too complicated and, and goes way too deep to be, to be just summarized by you know, class. Or, and in many ways, I do consider myself more privileged than a lot of people who are grown up way wealthier than me. Right. But I don't think we can make headway, like serious, meaningful headway in the personal responsibility versus social responsibility question, unless we take into account the holistic version of privilege 
So oh, to yeah. take us back to tech, I think that even even facing that hydra of big tech, you need you need a lot of resilience and a lot of of privilege in terms of how do you tune out the mob? How do you relegate certain things as unimportant? How do you how do you disconnect yourself? And just between us, like what are you a uh, uh, millennial, a young millennial? Oh, I'm millennial. I'm 28. A young millennial, cool. So you being younger than Vanessa and, and, and myself, you have a lot more energy for, for social media activity. So in my case, my age, my, my upbringing, my psyche renders me impatient with social media. I just turn it up and I'm like, whoa, fuck it. <laughs> so I easily disconnect, which I think for mental health is not a bad thing. For professional advancement, maybe, maybe it is a bad thing. But draw the, the privileged lines wherever you will. But also, you have quite a strong social media backbone based on your present. And I re do recommend for anyone who's listening, um, if you are on Twitter, if you have to be on Twitter, you should go to, to, to check out Senator Shoshana's account because it will save you from cutting yourself. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to put that as my new buy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the way that you comport yourself on on Twitter is, exhibits a type of resilience that isn't is, is that don't that some people don't necessarily have. You know, it's mm. funny. I had no resilience. I had to build it because my mom was super emotionally abusive. Now we're really good friends, but she had she was uh, bipolar and didn't know it. So I, when I was seventeen, I'm like, hey, I'm gonna leave and never talk to you again, or you're gonna seek treatment. And she finally, you know, she did care, so she finally sought treatment. And now we have a really good relationship. But I grew up with a mom who like would tell me like, oh, um, I'm going to break your arm. Uh, what man would ever want you? Like stuff like that day after day, she would um, uh, uh, ground me for spilling water, stuff like that. So I like always lived on eggshells. And then when I got really sick, you know, I have five or six, it depends how you count them, autoimmune diseases, plus a lot of uh, fallout diseases. So doctors didn't believe me. And I'm like, okay, Either I die and like never have a life, like whether I'm actually dead or like I don't have a life to live or I have to learn to be a really good advocate for myself. So those experiences turn me into who I am. But it's, um, you know, it, it, they're definitely bigger blessings than curses by like any measure. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's it's crazy how that kind of privilege can come from all different kinds of things. And it, it's funny. It's why I'm very against like cushioning the rooms too much for kids because we want them to have like a little, you know, uh, bumps and scrapes here and there just so they that they can build resilience. But not not to say they, they have to have the exact same upbringing, but different upbringings and different, like, experiences and hardships, I think, build us stronger. But oddly enough, 100%. like, I grew up very, like, uh, timid and shy. And, like, I would, I always like talking with adults about philosophy since the time I was a kid. But, uh, and my dad's, like, my best friend. And my mom and I are super close now. It's just it's a weird upbringing that brought me here and I'm so grateful for it, but it's funny like to see how some of that stuff benefits me um, and other friends in similar situations ended up in similar places. Like, you know, they had to learn to be the parent when they were young or they had to learn to be their own best advocate when they were young. And, you know, at the time it feels like the worst curse in the world, but when you're like, close to 30, you're like, I'm really glad I went through that, you know? <laughs> yeah. That, that's exactly my, my idea of privilege is that it's privilege is not, Let's let's calculate exactly how much money your parents made divided by your your skin color and times your gender identity. Being, privilege is exactly that, that you were able to go through things in life that shaped you in a way that you're now proud of and gives you I, some tools to use in life. And those things could be really traumatic experience in your childhood, which can be a source yeah. of privilege in some twisted way. 
but I digress into my uh, pet topic of the shallowness of the uh, <laughs> American mind sometimes on issue, or it's not necessarily shallowness. It's the pragmatical nature, which can be amazing, the pragmatic nature of the American mind. And then sometimes it becomes excruciatingly tedious when it turns into, let's try to quantify exactly how much privilege you have. I get the desire for certainty, though. I think we all kind of want certainty beyond what's possible in those calculations so we can have a quick and easy answer. I know I, I desire them far more than they're available sometimes. But um, but I think it's about overcoming those instincts and knowing that life isn't black and white and there's many shades of gray and colors. Um, there's even this great line about that in Law and Order where um, I don't remember their names, but one of the guys uh, said to like one of the girl cops, like, you know, you taught me to see all this in between area that I never thought existed. I always saw it was right or wrong, black and white. There's so much in between. And I think humans just struggle with that generally. Um, I don't know if we've ever done better with it at any time than another. And that's kind of where I get to like, maybe it's conceit of the present to think that it's worse or better now than it ever was. Mm. But um, it's, it's, you know, living in that gray, it's hard at first, but I think once you embrace it, it's a really fun place to live. That's such a great note That's to a end great, on. Yeah, great final line for the Uncertain Things podcast. Let's just sit in this uncertainty and love it. <laughs> Shoshana, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, it's us. my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are UncertainPod on the social media. Share us with your friends and enemies. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, stay sane. Oh, yeah. I'm very big on the college is often a scam train, like 70% of the time. I feel like 30%, I get it. But even then, it's overpriced. <laughs> <laughs>